you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Malachi. We're finishing up with verse 17 in chapter 2 and then beginning in chapter 3 for, through verse 5. And as you're turning, let me again just remind you, um, I've titled this A Weary God. Now, if you've been paying attention, and I wouldn't imagine that you would have picked up on this, but the second song we sang this morning, we actually sang that God never wearies. Um, now, again, I understand that the purpose behind that, and don't, don't write anything to McCartney, okay? It means God never tires, okay? That's what we're using there. But God does become weary, and we'll see that very clearly in this passage this morning, um, that God becomes wearied with our constant complaining. And so we need to make sure that, again, we understand that Psalm 124, 121, verse 4 is very clear. It says, the Lord does not slumber or sleep, but he does become weary of us. Now, why? Well, as you've been paying attention as you've gone through the book of Malachi, um, because we hear that God is love, we, we say we believe that God is love, he's never changing, and yet we continue to doubt God's love for us according to the situations we find ourselves in. We know he deserves our honor. We know he deserves our worship and our praise. But how often do we just give it half, half-heartedly? He gives us instructions and standards to uphold. He disciplines us in the ways of righteousness. And yet we still continue to follow our own ways and seek our own glory. However, and we're going to see this very clearly in this passage this morning, there's always hope to be found in Jesus Christ. And so with that understanding, we want to to truly believe what we just sang. We want to open our hearts so that the book of ancient words might come and change us. So that we do look more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's go to prayer as we begin to study this passage. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that the Holy Spirit come in abundance, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to understand. Because he only speaks truth. He only speaks the words that come from the Holy Trinity. The Father through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Father, make your words, make deep roots into our hearts, into our minds, so that we never, ever stray from them. But we take them and apply them and live off of them. Knowing again that we grow deeper and deeper in love with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, make us look like him. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 17 of chapter 2, hear the word of the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And then they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord, 
And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. But then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So as we unpack this, we want to see, first of all, what's kind of going on at the beginning. And I title this point one, pass the judgment, please. Now, what do I mean by that? When we become the center of attention, especially if it's something for something we have done wrong, it's within our nature to try to produce a misdirection. We try to get the focus off of us onto other things or other people. If you are a parent, you know this too well. Hey, do you know what you did was wrong? Yes, but do you know what so-and-so did? I'm not near as bad as so-and-so. See, we get this misdirection because we want God to be looking at someone else. So God's talking to the people of God, and he's saying, hey, here's things within you, within the priesthood, within the people of God that is so wrong that I'm going to judge you about it. And remember, he's about to go into years of silence. But at this moment, he's taken, he says, I want you to look at yourself and understand the things that are going on. And the, what we do in response is we say, yeah, God, we might be doing things bad, but did you see so-and-so? And so what they do is they begin to, to say, do we really desire justice? Because God, you don't, you don't care about justice. Listen, um, the, David, thank you, Psalm 73, and it's there for you. Again, it's a long chapter, but he's talking about um, looking at those who are wicked. And he says this, I'm starting in verse 11, and they said, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? These are people who are looking at God who are wicked and they're saying, how, how does he know? How does he, how does he know these things? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the days long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But then he says this, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome tax until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. See, it's easy for all of us to kind of look around and saying, God, you don't care. This world is going to hell in a handbasket and you don't give a rip. Look at the missionaries that were taken by the gang down in Haiti. Look at the sicknesses of your people. Look at the people around the world who were killed in your name. You don't care. Now think of the audacity of that statement of the creature looking at the creator and saying, and we do this all the time, you don't love us, you don't care. And so this is what they're doing. They're bringing an, an excuse to God. And the truth is for all of us, most all of us, we hope God grades on a curve, don't we? That's why people say, well, I'm a good person. Good according to what standard? 
Well, if I look at Josh Summers, I'm really good. I know I'm getting in. If he gets in, I'm definitely getting in. So we look at that curve and go, well, if we do these many good things and not this many bad things, then, then we're going to get in. We're going to get in the curve. But the standard is perfection. And God never drops that standard, ever. It's either we're perfect or we're found in a perfect Christ. And so when the standard becomes that holiness and perfection, it's both the outward, but it's also the inward fulfilling of that. And so when we begin to to understand that we are in sin and start living in sin and then start complaining about the things around us, then we begin to weary God. And again, we start to despise God's love. We do ask questions of, do you really love me? Because if you loved me, then you would have given me different circumstances in my life. You would have done things differently. And not only do I question whether you love me, but we've learned that we get to the place where we're saying, not only do I question your love, but I'm bored with you. When I come here, I'm just going through the motions because I can't stand what you're doing. I don't even care anymore. Or we find ourselves giving half-hearted worship. Again, it's easy for us to go through the motions. Or maybe we do believe what, some of what we say, but we give to God our leftovers and not our best. Or, or, or maybe it's the constant complaining we have against God. See, we do say God doesn't care about the world or he doesn't care about me. And if he doesn't care, then my worship of him doesn't matter. But see, God is telling us, he tells us very clearly in this passage that worship does matter. Our hearts do matter. And he wants to remind us, first of all, that judgment is coming. And again, we are like the people here in Malachi's time where most of us do ask the question, where is God? Where is God in this? And when we say that, what we're really saying is, God, you're the problem. And so we bring an accusation against God. Now, I want you to understand the hypocrisy of God's people. Because here's what we get good at. We get good at proclaiming what's wrong with other people. Just like they're saying, look at the evil that's around us, God. All these people who are evil are prospering, and we're not. But remember what he's saying? You're the ones who are committing adultery. You're the ones who are marry, marrying unfaithfully. You're the ones who are bored in worship. You're the ones who aren't honoring me. See, it's easy for us to look at other people and say, look at how they're not measuring up. A good friend told me just very recently, he says, I need to work more on me and less on everybody else. We're the problem. I'm the problem. My heart goes astray. My thoughts go to other ways. I put God and I tell God, this is what I want you to do. And if you don't do this, then I'm going to be ticked. And so we need to make sure that we're looking at ourselves and saying, I worship a holy God, a perfect God, a God who knows the beginning to the end. 
So why do I not give my heart to him and trust him and learn the things that he's about to teach me? See, we're so easy to become hypocritical and we're so easy to judge others, but again, it's our own mind and hearts that need to be judged. And so we sit there and we, we ask the question, um, but I'm, God comes and he goes, but I'm right here. You're asking me where I'm at and I'm telling you I'm right here. Now this is an incredible thing of mercy because listen, he gives to us um, renewal and not wrath. He, he says, listen, I'm sending a messenger and after the messenger is going to become your savior, the guy that you've been looking for your whole life. Now, I want you to understand how, how incredible and how giving and how um, merciful that is to us. Again, not any one of us, I, I take that back, I'm a jerk. So, again, if I was playing with my G.I. Joes or my little Fisher-Price figures or whatever, and they could talk and they start talking back to me, they're not around very long. You're done. I am the one in charge. Thank goodness I'm not God. Thank goodness you're not God. I don't want to be underneath you either. But God comes with mercy and he says, I am right here. I'm right here. And he goes on to tell us what he's about to do. Because listen, it's on God's timetable, not yours and not mine. And that's a good thing. Because God is perfect and righteous and good. And so the first thing he tells us to be is to be ready. Be ready because I am sending my messenger. So Malachi means messenger. So it's a messenger talking about another messenger who's coming. Ultimately, who is that? It's John the Baptist. Because it comes to, from Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, and it says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's John the Baptist. And remember, what was the purpose of that? They were to come and make sure that the, the road that was traveled by the king who was coming after them was prepared properly so that it was smooth. No rough places. And so the same John the Baptist remembers the one who comes, and when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And he says this, he gets it. I am not worthy to hold his sandals. He understands who Jesus is. This is God. And he understands him in the proper perspective. He's not our homeboy. He's not our errand boy. He's not our great Santa Claus in the sky. He is a holy God who understands what it means to show mercy and grace, but his perfection 
never is doubted. And so we understand that he is God. And he says this to us, that he is coming suddenly. Are we ready? Are we ready for the unexpected? This is what 1 Thessalonians says. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. A thief in the night. What does the Bible also say? If we knew the thief was coming... Wouldn't we stay awake? Funny story. Over in my neighborhood, one of my next-door neighbors, retired policeman from New York. The house right next to him got robbed. I was like, well, you're not a great cop. Come on. The house right next to you got robbed. Well, first of all, it was at night, and it was the son of the person who lived there. So we look at that and we kind of go, if we knew what was going to happen, then wouldn't we be ready? But God says, be ready for the unexpected all the time. So be ready. But then he makes a statement, who can endure? Who can endure during this trial? See, God's going to come as a witness because all of us are undone before a holy God. And God's going to come bear witness against our sin. And why, why are we sinning? Because the people, it says, do not fear the Lord. Now, again, it's not saying being scared of God. He says he does not fear the Lord. And listen, if we get God wrong, then so much else goes wrong. Do you grasp that? If we get who God is wrong, then everything else that we think about the world or the situations or the things, all that goes awry. Don't believe me? Turn on the news. Listen to radio. Look in your own families. Look at the church. And he's saying when we start to, to, to mix this up, when we don't fear God the way we should, then we start to have, and you saw the sins that were mentioned by name, sorcery, speaking ill, not taking care of widows, not taking care of orphans. All of these things start to happen, and it's things that we do. We don't take care of the fatherless. We don't trust and we don't thrust aside the sojourner. Don't believe me? How are your businesses acting? See, when we don't have God where he needs to be, and if God's not the center of our hearts, as Jesus is in everything, then everything else starts to get skewed. What really ticks me off is Christians who come and said, don't, it's just, don't take it personally, it's just business. Oh, it's not just business for a Christian. We're held to a higher standard. That's when people come to me for, for counseling or whatever. The first question I ask is, are you a Christian? Well, that seems like a weird question, Pastor. No, because if you're a Christian, then you're held to a higher standard. If you come to me and you say, I'm not a Christian, and, and then I say, well, I might still have some concerns about you. There's still things we can talk about. But if you come as a Christian, you say, I hold myself to a higher standard of what the Word of God says to me. And that's what God is saying to us. He's saying, if you are not a Christian, then you will be held accountable in judgment for these things. Who can endure? 
No one. No one. But he says to us, um, in regards to the messenger that comes talking about the Savior, he asks the same questions. Who can endure? In Christ, we do endure. It's Christ who is the one who takes the punishment. It's Christ who, ta- who pays for our sins. And it's the Lord that we've been seeking who becomes our Savior. And what he does is he begins to transform us. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. This is what he says. Consider him, God, who endured uh, from sinners in such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Why? Because our struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be wearied when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his fathers has not disciplined? For if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And besides this, we have had earthly fathers who who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we might share his holiness." Now listen to this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Duh. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Remember when you did things, whether you set off fireworks incorrectly, whether you jumped on um, a friend's hood of the car and it was a Mercedes and you dented the hood... If you broke things in someone else's house, were you the one punished? I was sent home. Jeffrey, it's time for you to go home. Gene, into your room. Now, it's vice versa at my house. Gene, you go home. Jeffrey, go into your room. Think about what you've done. I've already thought about it. Go think some more. And your father's coming home. Well, I knew what that meant. The belt. But my dad never disciplined any of my friends. And he didn't declare that it was their fault. I didn't trade the knife, Dad. They did. Did you participate? Did you let the backyard on fire? I didn't light the match. If we are legitimate children of God, God deals with us differently. He judges the sinner according to his sin. What he does for us and what this passage says in Hebrews and what Malachi tells us is he comes as a refiner. And the understanding here in the refiner is, again, it's the the place where silver or gold are placed and it's heated to where the dross comes to the top. And then the dross is removed. So all the imperfections are taken away. How do you know that you're done with the process? When the one sees his face reflected back in the silver or in the gold. 
when God looks at you, are we reflecting back to him as much as we can this side of heaven, his image? When people talk about you, do they talk about you as being, would there be enough to convict you as a Christian? Or do when they see you, will they begin to say, you're a Christian? Really? I would have never thought that about you. See, God comes to those that he loves and he says, this is what it means. I bring in the refiner's fire. I bring in the fuller's soap because I have to remove the stains. I have to remove the dross. Now hear this very clearly. It doesn't mean that we have to come into this building fixed to be changed. It does mean that when we come into this building, no matter where we are, God changes us to look more like his Savior. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, God never leaves us where we're at. He's always transforming our thinking in our hearts. Always. So again, the question is, are we becoming tiresome and complaining? Do we look at God and go, I'm done with this. I'm done. Or do we come in here and say, God, how can I please and honor you and glorify you with my whole life, with my mind and my heart and my actions? Because we are called to bring about righteousness And our worship should be one. that You shouldn't care about the next person beside you. I don't care if you sing well. I don't care if you don't sing well. I don't care if you like to pray out loud or don't pray out loud. Is your heart right before the Lord so that when you come in here, you're saying, God, you change me. You speak to me. You make me look more like my Savior. And may the Worship that comes from my heart be pleasing and honoring to you. And he will say, yes. So we give all of our praise and thanksgiving because we know our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to finish with this. It's a, it's a quote from the book, A Praying Life. And I put it in the North Side Notes so you can go get it and grab it. Um, or you can go online. But this is the quote, and I think it's, it's great. It's called A Visit to a Prayer Therapist. He says, let's imagine that you see a prayer therapist to get your prayer life straightened out. And the therapist says, let's begin by looking at your relationship with your Heavenly Father. See, God said, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. So what does that mean, that you are a son or a daughter of God? And then you reply that it means you have complete access to your Heavenly Father through Jesus That you have true intimacy based on not how good you are, but on the goodness of Jesus. And not only that, Jesus is your brother, and you're a fellow heir with him. So the therapist smiles and says, all of that is right. You've done a wonderful job on describing the doctrine of sonship. Now tell me, what is it like for you to be with your father? What is it like to talk with him? And you constantly tell the therapist how difficult it is for you to be in your father's presence even for a couple of minutes because your mind wanders. You aren't sure what to say. And you even wonder, does prayer make any difference? Is God even there?
then you feel guilty for your doubts and you just give up. Your therapist tells you what you already suspect. Your relationship with your Heavenly Father is dysfunctional. You talk as if you have an intimate relationship, but you don't. Theoretically, it is closed. Practically, it's distant. You need help. I think that's a question all of us need to ask. Do we know about Jesus? Or do we know him? Are we growing in our relationship with him? Are we falling deeply and madly in love with our Savior, Jesus Christ, every moment that we get to spend with him? Don't settle for the doctrine. Don't settle for the doctrine, please. Start by living that loving relationship with him. And as you begin to have it wash over you, say this, God, please start a revival and start with me. Start with me. True story in the Scottish, um, and I'll finish with this, when the Scots started their revival, they didn't start it with great fanfare or anything like that. Um, the story's told of a, of a father who was taking his son early in the morning when it was still dark and they were heading to church and they could see little humps around outside of the church and the son asked, Dad, what is that? And he said, those are the people who are coming to pray that God moves in a mighty way. What an amazing thing to be if people could come and even before the church is open, people out here huddled on their knees praying to God, please God, change me, change O'Galley, change Brevard County, change the world. Please God, please give us my neighborhood. Please give us this high school. Please give us our business Please give us the school system. Please give us the world. Start with me. Start with me. God won't weary of that. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He hears those prayers and he answers. But we have to ask. We have to fall in love with our Savior. Respond to the call. Let's pray.